Well, this is the first Sunday in Advent, and I've titled this sermon, Remembrance and Anticipation. And this morning marks the beginning of the Advent season. And the one Advent tradition that comes to most of our minds is the lighting of a candle each week, culminating in a center candle on Christmas Eve. And I I remember as a child the excitement of lighting another candle each week, waiting for that to occur. And I wish we could do that here, but renting in a school, there's fire code issues and we, we can't. But that process of waiting each week to light another candle, culminating again with this center candle on Christmas Eve, it was an exciting tradition growing up as a child in the church. As if the thoughts of gifts and treats on Christmas morning, the approaching Christmas day didn't build up enough excitement in the mind of a child. The tradition of lighting the candles added to the anticipation even more. Now, as a child, I really had no understanding the true significance of the Advent season. And as a child, I really didn't care. I was focused on the prospect of unwrapping gifts on Christmas morning. But in a culture that today shuns tradition more and more all the time, I thought it would be good to learn why we have this tradition. So what is Advent? For many Christians unfamiliar with the liturgical year, there may be some confusion surrounding the meaning of the Advent season. Some people may know that the Advent season focuses on expectation and think that it serves as an anticipation of Christ's birth in the season leading up to Christmas. And that is part of the story, but there's actually more to Advent. The word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia. You can correct me, Joe, if I'm wrong on that. (laughs) Scholars believe that during the 4th and 5th centuries in Spain and in Gaul, Advent was a season of preparation for the baptism of new Christians at the January feast of Epiphany, the celebration of God's incarnation represented by the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus. His baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist and his first miracle at Cana. And during this season of preparation, Christians would spend 40 days in penance, prayer, and fasting to prepare for the celebration. See, originally there was little connection between Advent and Christmas morning. By the 6th century, Roman Christians had tied Advent to the coming of Christ. And by the coming they had in mind was not the coming of Christ in a manger in Bethlehem, but his second coming in the clouds as the judge of the world. It was not until about the Middle Ages that the Advent season was explicitly linked to Christ's first coming on Christmas morning. Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days as described in Acts 2 and Hebrews 1. And as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to consummate his eternal kingdom, if you think about it, the church is in a similar situation today as Israel was at the end of the Old Testament. In exile, waiting, and hoping, in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf in leading them out of Egypt. And on this basis, they called for God once again to act for them. 
In the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration, while at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. In this light, the the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, perfectly represents the church's cry during the Advent season. And while Israel would have sung the song in expectation of Christ's first coming, as a church, we now sing the song in commemoration of that first coming and in eager anticipation of his second. Remembrance and anticipation. To balance the two elements of remembrance and anticipation, the first two Sundays in Advent, that's through December 16th, they look forward to Christ's second coming. And then the last two Sundays in Advent, December 17th through 24th, look backward to remember Christ's first coming. So over the course of the four weeks, scripture readings move from passages about Christ's return to Old Testament passages about the expectation of the coming Messiah. Four themes are expressed in the Advent messages. Hope, perseverance, joy, and love. And those four themes certainly resonate with anyone. We all need hope. We require perseverance to endure, and we long for joy and love. All these themes are represented in the Advent season, and much of the reason we celebrate Christmas over weeks of time is to celebrate those four aspects. It's celebrated by those who struggle in the midst of a lost, broken world. It's celebrated by those who struggle with the aches and pains of mortal bodies and minds. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor, a theologian, and an anti-Nazi dissident. And in a culture that turned the church into a state organization, he remained faithful to his Savior even to the end, imprisoned for his faith and then killed by the Nazis less than one month before the end of the war in Europe. Bonhoeffer described Advent this way, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and look forward to something greater to come. That is the essence of Advent, looking forward to something greater to come. So with that, with that background and understanding in mind, let's open our Bibles this morning to hear about the first theme of Advent, hope. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of these apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God and Father, and after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because this is God's word, let's take a moment in prayer before we begin our study. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for this morning. We are grateful for the opportunity to gather together as believers and open your word. And God, I pray that as I speak, your truth would reign. Father, overcome uh, my mortal failings, and may your truth ring true, uh, loud and clear. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So what is hope? What is meant by hope? And I believe that we all here realize and understand that when we speak of hope, we're not referring to some wishful fantasy. Christmas is right around a quarter, and many people may say, ah, I hope we have a white Christmas. When we say something like that, we are declaring something we wish for, something there is no certainty of, but we desire it nonetheless. There is no power in that sort of hope. Indeed, to live your life life based on a wishful belief is empty foolishness. Much of the world celebrates Christmas even though they do not follow Jesus as the Christ. Even though they do not claim Christ as their Savior, they call, they call Christmas time a season of hope. People are nicer to one another, more gracious, more giving. For a brief time, the majority of people emulate their perception of Jesus, limited in, and inadequate though it may be. And for a few weeks, everyone is happier and more joyous than normal. Then the long gray days of January set in. The bills arrive from all the celebration, and that temporary joyous feeling evaporates under the burdens of life. That hope was temporary. It was temporary because it was a mere injection that simulated a cure rather than a permanent and inextinguishable cure. It was a mortal attempt for hope when what is required by sin and death is an irrefutable, 
inextinguishable and eternal cure. To understand Christmas, to appreciate the significance of the birth of Jesus, we have to look at the purpose for his being born a man. Our minds immediately go to the truth that his birth and coming as a man enabled the sacrifice, which purifies us and grants us salvation. Yes, that definitely gives hope. But that is not the end. And that is not the final chapter. Even saved, we still remain here on this earth. Though redeemed by his blood, we have to suffer the slings and arrows. We still have to feel pain and suffer in a fallen world. And for many people, those slings and those arrows can pull them down, leave them feeling helpless in this life. And Jesus Christ, because he loves us, came to be the remedy for that hopelessness, that present need we have in these mortal bodies. And just as Kyle preached last week, Jesus declared that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking here of physical bread and water. Just as we need bread and drink to sustain us physically, Jesus is telling us that he knows we need spiritual sustenance. Being fallen mortal creatures, we are powerless against eternity without the Christ and the Holy Spirit active and dwelling within us. In this way, hoping Christ is our spiritual nourishment. We've all experienced that feeling of being famished. Your stomach empty and aching. You get a headache. You feel like all your energy is sapped. It just plummets. And you feel as if you're sapped of all your strength and even the smallest of tasks seems a terrible burden. You just want to close your eyes and wait it out. But you also know you can't sustain that condition very long. So you get a little bit of food in you, a drink of water, and it's amazing how immediately you feel 100% better. The burdens of life can leave you feeling spiritually and emotionally famished. When we attempt to plow through this life under our own strength, we are certain to become weary and weakened. And this is especially true in church life. Satan has little care for whether your job goes well, other than how it may impact you otherwise. But church, that he despises. And he desires to see it unravel and rendered ineffective. Just as Jesus is our hope for the present, so he is our hope for the future. And that is a hope that both sustains us now and is absolutely able to be counted on for the future. And in that manner, hope in Christ does not disappoint. Hope in Christ is an anchor for the soul. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, it tells us, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Mackelsdeck. Not wispy, wishful, or unfounded. Our hope is sure and steady. Jesus is an anchor for your soul. It is an irrefutable hope for us eternally. Jesus, resurrected, reigns on high for his glory and ours. He reigns today and he will reign forevermore. He is risen today and thus he is a forerunner 
meaning others, will follow. If you believe Jesus Christ is God and you are obedient to him, committing yourself to him as your Savior, you too will one day be resurrected with him. This we can be certain of. As Romans 5, 5 tells us, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into the hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The Christmas story is full of shining examples of people who put their hope in Christ and were not disappointed. The Magi, who traveled such a great distance to see Christ. Imagine if they went all that way and Jesus wasn't even there. That would have been disappointing. But their hope was not disappointed. They found Christ in Bethlehem just as it had been prophesied. There are many other examples as well. Remember that prophecy from Isaiah about the virgin who gave birth to a son? That prophecy was fulfilled when the Virgin Mary gave birth to Christ that first Christmas evening. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. How about Mary? Mary was told by the angel that she would give birth to the Savior. Now, every pregnancy is a time of waiting and expectation and hope. And in this respect, Mary's pregnancy was no different. But we read in Luke 2, Joseph went to Bethlehem to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. All of Mary's hopes for that baby. When the baby was born and she held that newborn infant in her arms and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in the manger, Mary's hope in Christ was not disappointed. And then there's Simeon, the man from Jerusalem who was waiting for the Messiah to come. We read in Luke 2, Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. God told Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he died. And at the precise moment that Joseph and Mary were bringing Jesus into the temple, the Spirit moved Simeon to be there as well. Simeon put his hope in Christ and he was not disappointed. And then remember that the Advent season is not just about those who waited for Christ's first coming. It's also about us who wait for Christ's second coming. When Christ returns, he will banish all evil. He will make all things right. He will restore the earth. And we will see Christ face to face. And all our hopes will be fulfilled. In Romans 8, we read, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The world places faith in themselves, their belongings, sometimes even a wishful hope for change. To believe in Christ is to place your hope in an eternal, risen, breathing God who has overcome death itself and he reigns on high. Without his birth, Jesus would not have been crucified. Without his crucifixion, he could not have died. Without dying, he could not have been resurrected. And without the resurrection, there is no hope. That is why here, in verses 16 to 17, Paul tells us, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. What foolishness to place your eternal hope in a man, even a good man. Paul goes on to clarify more. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christian faith. To be certain, if there is no resurrection... All ends with the last beat of your heart. Then how in vain would our faith be? In verse 19 he tells us, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But that is not the limit of our hope. Because that is not the limit of our Savior. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. His heart stopped beating and he was pierced by a spear. No more oxygen to the brain. He ceased. He, had he been merely a man, that would have been the end of it. But Jesus, though fully man, was also fully God. And he conquered death. And he rose to live again. And he is alive this day. We all have hope because he lives. He lives because of his resurrection. And one day we shall experience resurrection as well. And what a glorious day that will be. So what will happen on that day? Paul tells us here. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are three important elements to his second coming revealed here. Who Jesus is coming for, what will happen when he comes, and how it will happen. First, Jesus is coming for those who belong to him. Not, now, everybody participates in the Christmas holiday, but not everybody will be resurrected to him. Only those who profess belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God will be with him in glory. Reject him, believe in yourself instead, and you will experience eternity but not one filled with hope. Second, at his coming, the faithful will be changed. 
Every day, I discover new aches and pains in this body. My hearing is degrading. My eyes are dimming. My bones weaker. But when I'm resurrected, I will no longer experience pain. I will no longer experience tiredness. I will no longer be hungry. I will no longer be sick. And that's beautiful. But more importantly, when made new, our sinful nature will be destroyed. We won't offend our Heavenly Father with impure thoughts. We won't hurt each other with words born of selfishness or petty feelings. All we do and say and think will glorify God. Thirdly, how fast will this happen? In a flash. In the twinkling of an eye. Now here in this life, we experience the protracted and seemingly achingly slow process of sanctification. Most of the pain in that process is because of how slow it is. We hate that we still have to grow in our faith. We despise our failings and repetitious sin. But on that day, the sanctification process will be completed in a flash. Worthy of glory because his glory will be shown through his nature, being uncontested within us. With this future before us, and with this hope in Jesus secure and promise, let us live out the words we see in 1 Corinthians 15 to tell us, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus is our head. He is the second Adam. For us to be resurrected, he had to do so first. His resurrection is a pledge for our own. All who die do so through the death of the first Adam. All who rise will do so, do so through the second Adam. It is by the sin of Adam that death reaches us all. And it is through the merit and power of Christ that we will be raised. And though we all die because of the sin of Adam, this does not mean that all will be made alive in Christ. Christ rose as the first fruit. And therefore, those who are Christ, those who belong to him, shall be made alive in Christ. When the first sheaf of the harvest was given to the Lord, it was a token that all the remaining harvest belonged to God. So it is that Christ, who has been raised, is the guarantee of the resurrection of all God's redeemed people. When you put your hope in Christ, you will not be disappointed Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, Romans tells us. If you put your trust in other things, they will disappoint you. Whether you put your trust in people, government, even a spouse, any future plans you have made, other things, all these things will disappoint, but not Christ Jesus. Jesus will never disappoint you. And that gives us this fact that hope in Christ sustains us for today and for tomorrow. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you can have hope for today. But one day you will die. Because Jesus has risen, you can have hope for tomorrow. Because one day we will be risen as well. Our hope, Jesus Christ, will resurrect us to be with him, to worship him and to serve him. He is the hope that both sustains, sustains us today 
and for all of eternity. As a church body, we have certainly experienced the need for hope. We have need for a shepherd. We have need for restoration. We have a need for understanding of what is to come, and we have a need for sustaining strength. Those needs are current, and they are genuine. But we should take heart, because all of those needs are met in Christ. Jesus is our good shepherd. Any man that we may have leading us is imitating Christ, the genuine and true shepherd. Our church doesn't seem to be what it once was, but in reality, you and I are the church. We are still here, still gathering, still gathering to worship, give praise to our creator, and thus we exist and we press on. Yes, we desire to know what the future holds, but that knowledge is not necessary. For nearly three years now, we have pressed on, trusting in Jesus. And as for me, my trust in him is not worn or spent. I think I want to know what the future holds, but really I shouldn't. Had I known three years ago what awaited, I'm not certain I would have pressed forward. But Jesus gives us what we need for today. That is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray, give us this day our daily bread. He is our spiritual sustenance. And I only need what Christ has in store for us today and nothing more. Any more, it would be like the manna to the Israelites. For if they took more than they needed, it bred worms and stank. Christ is sufficient for me today, and he will be sufficient for me tomorrow. Jesus is sufficient for your every need. 2 Corinthians 9.8 encourages us by telling us, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. We have need for sustaining strength. Of that there is no doubt. This life can be hard. Church life can be hard. Being saved does not cure us of all ailments. Only the eternal ramifications of them. And as a gathering of broken people, we hurt one another, we offend, we fail, we still sin, we still have weakness and doubt. On our own, what pitiful creatures we are. But hope, Jesus Christ, hope produces endurance and endurance produces perseverance. You are strengthened when you place your hope in a faithful and almighty God. Psalm 146 tells us, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. You don't have to trust in a mere man. You don't have to trust in government or banks or even a spouse. You have hope in a pure, loving, grace-filled Savior. You have hope in a righteous, all-powerful, all-consuming God who pursues you and protects you and counts you as his child. You have hope because he cannot fail. He cannot be defeated even by death itself. You have hope because even though he came once, he is coming again. One of my favorite passages in Revelation 
Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a God whom you can place your hope in and who fills you with hope. He is astoundingly powerful and righteous and pure. And he holds you securely in his hand. And he is coming back for you. He is coming back for me. What could possibly be more certain and hope-filled than that? As we enter this Advent season, as we prepare for the celebration of our birth to Savior, remember why he came here. He came to bring you to him, not just in faith in this life, but in his presence for the life to come. Be filled with wonder at the babe, how he was willing to submit to the limitations and pains of this life, But even more, be filled with wonder at the depth of his love for you, that he would do all in preparation for the day when he returns to take us home. Let's pray. Father, we we worship you. Who but you could give us such hope, such assurance, such strength for perseverance? Only you can, Father. And it's only through the work of Jesus that we are redeemed to you. We can be counted as your sons and daughters. Yes, we long for that day when the imperfections of this body and of this mind and this spirit are wiped clean and we are made anew. In the twinkling of an eye, we are changed. And we can physically worship you in your presence. Father, until that day comes... Give us the strength to press forward. Have the Holy Spirit speak in our minds, reminding us where our hope lies. Not in the things of this world, but in you. And may we be faithful to share that with others. It's in Jesus' holy and perfect name we pray. Amen.